calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the final week celebrating Black History Month on Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, even though I would argue that we celebrate a lot of Black history pretty often because that's what being intersectional is all about, my friends. For those of you who didn't listen to the mini episode and didn't hear my apology, I am very sorry that this episode did not get to you a week earlier. That was what I had originally planned. But I am now co-producing a new show with somebody and we had our first day of recording last week and it just it really pushed everything back on top of the like three other jobs that I have outside of my home. So it makes things a little bit difficult sometimes and I really was putting a lot of effort into this episode and I felt like it wasn't at a point that I felt good about it going out into the world. So I wanted to give myself a little bit more time to be able to finesse the episode, get a little bit more research done and really feel like I've given it the respect and the work that it deserves. All right, so... This week, I wanted to talk about what I am referring to as the modern civil rights movement, even though when you Google that, this doesn't show up. But that's how I really feel about all of this. But, you know, Black Lives Matter in particular is something that I'm going to be focusing on in this episode, but also the broader concept of what our modern day fight for Black rights looks like. And I feel like this is a really important time for us to be discussing all of this because we are nearing the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. We've already reached the three-year anniversary for Ahmaud Arbery. The day that I am recording this two days ago was the third anniversary of his vicious murder by three white men who were stalking him while he was running. And then the beginning of March was when Breonna Taylor was murdered by police. And then it was the end of May in 2020 that George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And this, of course, sprung off such a wave of unrest 
in this country and all over the world. I'm going to get into just, you know, how big these protests were and everything, but I know there are probably a lot of you who were listening to the show during that time, hearing Keegan and I discussing everything that was going on as it was happening. And for those of you who haven't, I'm going to kind of, you know, use this episode as a way to describe, you know, how we were feeling at the time and things like that. And my reaction to looking back on three years and I guess how far we've come how little far we've come. I don't know. Let's just talk about it. So most of this episode is going to be around the framework of Black Lives Matter, the movement, the network, how it got started, and how I feel it truly created this new modern civil rights movement for the United States. The Black Lives Matter movement came out of extreme anger and sadness over the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's killer. Shortly after George Floyd was murdered, I ordered Trayvon's mother's book, Rest in Power, and I devoured it. I loved learning more about Trayvon as a person and what his life was like leading up to his untimely death. I remember when Trayvon was killed. I remember his death. I remember the Million Hoodie March and a lot of the hatred that was aimed at Trayvon instead of his killer. Because it started this new movement, I want to share a little bit of Trayvon's story to see why the women who started Black Lives Matter were so compelled to do so. Almost exactly 11 years ago, on February 26, 2012, 17-year-old Trayvon was walking home from a convenience store, wearing a gray hoodie and holding a package of Skittles and an Arizona iced tea drink of some sort. George Zimmerman, a volunteer for the Neighborhood Watch, spotted Trayvon walking toward his dad's place, but called into the Sanford police saying he was acting suspicious. Zimmerman then began stalking Trayvon, even though the dispatcher told him that he didn't have to do that. Instead of me just explaining the interaction and how shitty this George Zimmerman guy is, I'm just going to play the 911 call for you now. And I'm just going to give a trigger warning here and for most of the episode, but this guy is a real piece of shit. After police department, where I recording the shot. Hey, we've had some break-ins in my neighborhood, and there's a real suspicious guy. Uh, this guy looks like he's up to no good, or he's on drugs or something. It's raining, and he's just walking around looking about. Okay, and this guy, is he white, black, or Hispanic? He looks black. Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, a dark hoodie, like a gray hoodie, and either jeans or sweatpants and white tennis shoes. He's here now. He was just staring. Oh, he's just walking around the area. All the houses. Okay. And now he's just staring at me. Yeah, now he's coming towards me. Okay. He's got his hand in his waistband. And he's a black male. Okay. How old would you say he was? He's got a button on his shirt. Late teens. Late teens, okay. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong with him. Yeah, he's coming to check me out. He's got something in his hands. I don't know what his deal is. Okay, just let me know if he does anything, okay? Yeah, we got him on the way. Just let me know if this guy does anything else. Okay. These assholes, they always get away. Yeah, he goes straight in. Don't turn and make a left. Shit, he's running. He's running? Which way is he running? Down towards the, uh, the entrance of the neighborhood. 
Yeah, okay, we don't need you to do that. Okay. Alright, sir, what is your name? George. Hey, Ryan. Alright, George, what's your last name? Zimmerman. So that was edited a little bit. I forgot to say that before I played the recording, but essentially the only things that I cut out were just like addresses, phone numbers, and indicators as to where on the property Trayvon was and where George was and things like that. I just don't feel like I need to release the personal information of where these people lived and their phone numbers. So that was the only thing that I cut out, but... I felt that it was so important to play that phone call because it really puts you in the mindset of what George Zimmerman was experiencing or what he perceived to be experiencing. And the fact that we now know that, you know, this kid was walking in the rain because he wanted a snack and he had his hood up because it was fucking raining. It's raining in LA right now. I'm wearing my hood up or a beanie or something so my hair doesn't get wet. And the fact that a man in a car would feel so intimidated by a black child reaching into their like waistband or into their pocket, he's like, oh yeah, he definitely has something. It's just, it's such a scary recording to hear because it is so obvious the perceived fear that this man has of this black child. And it devastates me. It breaks my heart. And that's why I think it's important to know about who Trayvon was as a person as well. So after the line hung up, a violent encounter occurred between Trayvon and Zimmerman just 70 yards away from the back door of Trayvon's father's house. Trayvon was then fatally shot. Witnesses called 911 as well, and they told dispatchers that they saw two men wrestling. In the background, you can hear someone calling for help during one of those calls. There were no arrests after the murder, which enraged Trayvon's parents and his loved ones, of course. This was a really, really difficult part of the book to read because these parents and loved ones, his siblings, really felt like no one cared that their son or brother was murdered and they really felt like they were at a loss and didn't know how to go about pressuring the system to charge George Zimmerman. And a lot of the media attention after Trayvon's death was also a little bit negative as well, portraying Trayvon as a bad kid or just not talking about him much at all. But Trayvon wasn't just some bad kid who deserved what happened to him. No one is, by the way. He was just a kid who was full of promise, and his only crime here was wearing his hood up and grabbing some snacks. Trayvon is remembered as being incredibly polite and generous. He was also a great football player, often coached by his dad, Tracy, but his real passion was aviation. He enrolled in the Experience Aviation Program taught by legendary aviator Barrington Irving. After graduating from the program, he came back to volunteer to help the new students in the courses. And he was so serious about his future career in aviation that as a freshman in high school, he would attend his regular classes in the morning, then attend George T. Baker Aviation School for the rest of the day. And one of his teachers said that math was his favorite subject. What? 
This reminds me a lot of my growing up as well. I was homeschooled for half a year in eighth grade, which happened because of a combination of reasons. I was getting really serious about my skating and I wanted to get earlier ice time so that I wouldn't have as many kids on the ice so I could focus more on what I was doing. But I had also gone through two really horrible experiences in middle school and I had to be pulled out halfway through my eighth grade year. So instead of enrolling me in a whole new school, my mom decided to homeschool me and I went to a place called Huntington Learning Center in the morning and then in the afternoon I would go to the rink and I would be there from like, I don't know, like one until, gosh, if I didn't have kickboxing, I was at the rink probably until like seven and then sometimes I would go to kickboxing after skating and be there until like nine. (laughs) So my life was crazy when I was a preteen. And then when I started high school, I went to a public high school and got out one period early. We only had five periods in a day, and they were really, really long. So I got out of school at one every day in order to make my like 2.15 ice time or something like that. And I did that for three out of four years of high school. And I would still be at the rink or at the gym really, really late at night and things like that. But that was all I really wanted to do. And I really wanted to focus on the thing that I felt like was going to be my future career, but on top of that, and more importantly, my passion and the thing that I loved to do more than anything else in the world. So I felt a bit of a connection with Trayvon and learning about his passion for aviation. It just really reminded me of that like young spark that I had for my sport as well. The similarities between Trayvon and I, however, stop at the math being the favorite subject. Don't even get me started on my hatred for math. Through all of these amazing qualities, Trayvon was not, like all of us, a perfect victim. He was staying with his dad in Sanford during the time of his second suspension from school for having a pipe and I think it was like a bag or container that had like weed remnants in it. It didn't even have like actual flour or anything like that in the compartment. But he got suspended and he had been suspended once before as well and I can't remember for what. But anyways, this was going to be a 10-day suspension so His mom sent him to his dad, Tracy's place in Sanford, Florida, and his dad said that he wanted Trayvon to come visit to, quote, get his priorities straight. You know, have some, like, father-son bonding time, you know, maybe get a look at what your son is going through, see how you could help him, things like that. So this was supposed to be, you know, a, a nice trip, you know, and I liked this too, because I, I too was once suspended for fighting of all things, which is insane. That's another story and tangent I'm not going to get off on right now, but I didn't really get in like serious trouble or anything because the situation was ridiculous anyways. But I remember my mom being like, well, you were suspended. So like no TV during school hours, but like you're okay. I wasn't grounded or punished really or anything like that. And this kind of reminds me of that situation as well. Instead of like grounding their son and severely punishing them, it's like, you know, go to your dad, get some time with him. Maybe there's something there that can help, you know, pull you out of whatever funk you're in or whatever situation you're going through. Like I had mentioned, especially once 
the family had hired some high-powered lawyers and things like that. The media attention did pick up a bit around Trayvon's case and his story, and a lot more social media and text messages were released to the public. And a lot of people tried to make Trayvon out to be this bad kid as if it would justify his murder somehow. And he wasn't a bad kid. He had no record. And all he was doing was drinking and smoking a little bit, just like every other teen in America. You know, you can't, you could probably look at any teenager's phone and see some pretty heinous shit. Like, kids' brains are not fully developed yet. And then you add weed or alcohol to the situation, and you're going to be making even stupider decisions. You're probably going to act like a tough guy sometimes, or, you know, whatever. But, Of course, people took these messages and tried to spin it to be like, see, this was a bad kid. He deserved what happened to him. And it was just so devastating. And this negative press probably contributed to the lack of arrest of George Zimmerman. The family got Benjamin Crump, legendary civil rights lawyer, to represent them, who was accompanied by Natalie Jackson, who specializes in cases involving women and children. On March 8th, a Change.org petition asking for signatures for the prosecution of George Zimmerman went viral and received more than 2.2 million signatures, the largest amount ever in the site's history at the time. Thanks to the public outcry and the attention put into the case by Trayvon's parents, Ben Crump and Natalie Johnson, charges were finally made against Zimmerman. And so many people felt such an intense connection to this story. Even President Obama felt a personal connection. He said, If I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. And I think his parents are right to expect that all of us Americans are going to take this with the seriousness it deserves. Even Republican Mitt Romney said that, quote, Justice can be carried out with impartiality and integrity. Zimmerman was eventually acquitted of his second-degree murder charge, and the phrase Black Lives Matter was first used by Alicia Garza on July 13, 2013. When you go to the Black Lives Matter website, they have a link labeled Herstory. That is because it was three black women who started Black Lives Matter. Alicia Garza, Patrice Coolers, and Ayo Tometi created the Black Lives Matter network in July 2013, Patrice is from L.A. in the San Fernando Valley. Hey, girl. Growing up, she described seeing her 11- and 13-year-old brothers, Paul and Monty, being needlessly slammed into a wall by the police when she was only 9 years old. She herself was arrested at the age of 12 for smoking weed. At the time that she was arrested, she went to a mostly white, very privileged school in Sherman Oaks. I'm trying to think of what school this could possibly be. They say it was a place for gifted kids, and she said it was the white children who introduced her to weed. Monsi, one of her brothers, was arrested in 1999, and in a fight with prison officers, he was allegedly choked, beaten up brutally, and was even, trigger warning because this is graphic and horrible, made to drink toilet water. Patrice has cited this treatment as one of the reasons for her activism. Even as a teenager, she decided to join the Bus Riders Union. With that group, she learned about revolutionaries, critical theory, and social movements from all around the world, while also practicing activism. She was part of her high school's social justice magnet program in Reseda, and after graduation, she went on to college to get degrees in religion and philosophy at UCLA, as well as an MFA from the Roski School of Art and Design at USC. 
Patrice has an interest in the Nigerian religious traditions of Ifa and incorporates its rituals into protest events. Sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. I'm doing my best. She became interested in the religion after being forced out of her home for coming out as queer to her family, who was Jehovah's Witness. She said, Seeking spirituality had a lot to do with trying to seek understanding about my conditions, how these conditions shape me in my everyday life, and how I understand them as a part of a larger fight, a fight for my life. Alicia Garza was born to a single mom in Oakland, California. For the first four years of her life, she lived with her mother and her mom's twin brother, but after that, she was sent to live with her Jewish stepfather and grew up Elisa Schwartz. Elisa, wow. Alicia, Alicia Schwartz, which is really hard to say. I might keep in the bloopers of me trying to say her name a million times. But she grew up in a mixed race and mixed religion household. Alicia identifies as Jewish. She began her foray into activism when she was 12 years old, when she promoted sex education and birth control. What 12-year-old do you know that gives a shit about sex ed and birth control? If you know a 12-year-old that's like, you know what, I feel like we have a right to learn about our bodies and to have access to reproductive care, like, round of applause for you, more power to you and this person, but oh my gosh, like that is amazing to me. She went to college at the University of California in San Diego and continued her activism there by working in the Student Health Center and also joining with the Student Association calling for higher pay for the school's custodial staff. In her last year of college, she helped organize the first Women of Color Conference, a university-wide assembly, in 2002. She graduated with a degree in anthropology and sociology. Ayo Tometi is the daughter of Nigerian immigrants and grew up mostly in the suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona, with other children of immigrants. Her parents are Yoruba, and she grew up speaking Yoruba, but also Isan in English. Her parents came to the U.S. the year before Ayo was born, and her family has faced the threat of deportation throughout her upbringing. She went to school at the University of Arizona, and while there, she advocated against Arizona SB 1070, one of the strictest anti-immigration bills passed in U.S. history. She began her activism by demonstrating with the ACLU, and she worked as a legal observer at the U.S.-Mexico border. Once Patrice and Alicia got their thing started, AO contacted numerous of other activists in the black community, alerting them of the new plans and inviting them to join. She is also credited as choosing black and yellow as their colors, in addition to forming BLM's social media platforms and strategy. Now, Black Lives Matter is global, with more than 40 chapters worldwide. Initially, they created an online network for activists to organize with a set of principles and goals. According to their website, Black Lives Matter Foundation Incorporated is a global organization in the U.S., U.K., and Canada whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. By combating and counteracting acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation, and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives. Local Black Lives Matter chapters are asked to abide by the list of guiding principles, but operate with no structure or hierarchy. Every group is their own thing, as long as everyone sticks to the mission. 
Alicia Garza said that the network was not interested in policing who is and who is not part of the movement. It all started purely online, using hashtags on social media to reach thousands of people. But then another young, unarmed black man was murdered. That man was Mike Brown. On August 9, 2014, in Ferguson, Missouri, 18-year-old Mike Brown was shot and killed by police officer Darren Wilson. There are many different accounts of the incident, including the testimonies of Wilson and Brown's friend, Dorian Johnson, who was with Brown at the time. Many details differ, but most accounts agree that Wilson saw Brown and Johnson walking in the street, demanded they get on the sidewalk, then stopped his police SUV in front of them in order to confront them. He and Brown had an altercation through the open window of the car, during which Wilson fired twice. Brown and Johnson tried to leave. Wilson exited his car to pursue them, and at some point, Brown turned back around to face Wilson, who then fired 12 shots, six of which hit Mike Brown. Wilson claimed that he fired in self-defense because Mike charged at him, which Dorian denies. 18-year-old Mike Brown was fatally shot at about 12.02 p.m. in broad daylight, and his body would remain where it died for four hours before it was finally moved. Protests broke out the following day and lasted for several days following. The shooting ignited the long-simmering tensions between the majority black population of Ferguson and its police department, who were mostly white. Taking it from a hashtag to a movement, Patrice Coolers went to Ferguson to be part of the organizing. Their participation in the protests in Ferguson made them known more broadly as a powerful black rights movement. In November 2014, a grand jury decided not to indict Wilson, and later the Justice Department concluded that Wilson's killing of Mike Brown was justified and he had acted out of self-defense. Go fuck yourselves. However, this same Justice Department also found routine violations of civil rights of its black residents in its investigation into the police department. Riddle me that. From July 2013 to May 1st, 2018, the hashtag has been tweeted over 30 million times, on average 17,002 times every day. In 2014, the American Dialect Society chose hashtag Black Lives Matter as their word of the year. Yes Magazine picked it as one of the hashtags that changed the world in 2014. By June 2020, within a month after the killing of George Floyd, it had been tweeted roughly 47.8 million times. On May 28, 2020, there were nearly 8.8 million tweets with the BLM hashtag, and the average increased to 3.7 million per day. Black Lives Matter Network now uses a variety of protest strategies, including direct action. Direct action tactics make people uncomfortable enough that they must address the issue. The best example that I can always think of or that pops into my head is the time that a group of gay people started making out in the waiting room of a hospital in New York to protest the treatment of AIDS patients in the 80s. All these nurses and doctors are like, what the fuck did we do with all of these people making out with each other? Now that's a sit-in I would really love to be invited to. Black Lives Matter is also part of the Movement for Black Lives. This is a coalition of more than 50 groups representing the interests of black communities across the United States. These groups include Black Lives Matter Network, the National Conference for Black Lawyers, and the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. 
They're endorsed by groups like Color of Change, Race Forward, Brooklyn Movement Center, Policy Link, Million Women March Cleveland, and One DC. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. One of the main parts of Black Lives Matter is bringing police brutality to the forefront. And they are often giving allegations of excessive force by police. In the 2000s, the federal government began to attempt to track the number of people killed in interactions in the United States with police. I say attempt because this program was defunded. In 2008, a law passed that required the reporting of homicides at the hands of police, but of course, many police departments did not obey by this law. This is the thing that always gets me. Just because you enforce the law doesn't mean you're above it, jackasses. And I also can't believe that I'm talking about something as recent as 2000 and 2008, even though I know it was a while ago. But at the same time, I feel like there should have been more attempts to bring police brutality to the light before then. And I'm sure that people tried, but like, Jesus. 
In 2019, 1,001 people were shot and killed by police officers in the United States, but this number varies up to about 100 more. The rate of death for black Americans is more than twice as high as the rate for white Americans by the hands of police officers. A study in 2015 showed that unarmed black Americans have about a 3.5 higher probability of being shot by police than white Americans, although in some places that rate could be as much as 20 times higher. Another study in 2015 showed that the majority of those killed by police were fleeing. They were trying to get away. They weren't trying to fight you. A lot of the data in this subject has been disputed because so much of it has to do with the population in certain areas of the country compared to others, and the fact that many of these murders go unreported. Activists and journalists have still done their best to track them as closely as possible. I'm thankful someone is doing the job. Taken from the information recorded from 2021, from 1980 to 2018, more than 30,000 people have died at the hands of police in the United States. The organization Mapping Police Violence counted at least 1,176 individuals killed, making it the deadliest year on record. The U.S. police has killed more people compared to any other industrialized democracy, with a disproportionate amount of them being people of color. The reason that they are able to get away with so much of this is because of the Blue Wall of Silence, which is a code of silence among police officers not to report a colleague's errors, misconducts, or crimes. If questioned about an incident of alleged misconduct involving another officer, the officer being questioned would perjure themselves by feigning ignorance about the incident at hand. The history of the code is actually kind of interesting because it ties in with someone I've discussed on the show before. Kate Warren, who was a feminist fave a while ago, once worked for the Pinkerton Detective Agency, established in 1850. Well, they say that the code could derive from this agency, as they were known for using police officers to violently end strikes. There's also the Ku Klux Klan, of which many were members of the police force. This blue wall of silence from police officers prevents stopping corrupt officers. Until these officers are willing to be honest about their boys in blue— these crimes will continue to be swept under the rug. The initiation of qualified immunity in 1967, the Supreme Court made it so government defendants are protected from financial burdens when acting in good faith in legally murky areas. One of those murky areas is that qualified immunity does not protect officials who violate clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. However, this is clearly a very objective standard to uphold. Qualified immunity makes it difficult to sue public officials for misconduct, and other criticisms include that it allows police brutality to go unpunished. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor has noted a disturbing trend of siding with police officers using excessive force with qualified immunity, describing it as sanctioning a shoot-first-think-later approach to policing. Something else that Black Lives Matter is working toward is defunding the police. Now, you remember hearing this all over the place three years ago, don't you? When asking to defund the police, what we are asking for is a reallocation of funds to better support the Black community, such as social services, youth services, housing, education, and health care. There is a spectrum of intentions when people use the phrase defund the police. 
Some want modest reductions, while others veer more toward the abolition of the contemporary police services. Since the 1960s, the government has increased the amount spent on budgets for law enforcement as LBJ's war on crime prioritized law enforcement and prisons. Also, police unions have grown in power in local politics due to their direct endorsements of political candidates and funding of campaigns. This has made them virtually untouchable because politicians like their money. By 2020, U.S. cities collectively spent about $115 billion per year on policing. That is billion with a B. B as in Bob. Particularly in Los Angeles, the LAPD budget constituted about 18% of the city's entire budget, receiving $1.68 billion out of a $10.5 billion budget and about 54% of the city's general funds. A city with one of the highest populations of unhoused citizens, a city with such an immense discrepancy in wealth and services, a city where everything seems to be getting more and more expensive, but nothing is being done to protect its citizens, it is no wonder. Chicago and New York, you're no better, as they too take a giant chunk of their budget and put it toward law enforcement. With this in mind, according to a study in 2020 done by the Washington Post, there is no correlation, positive or negative, between annual per capita police funding and violent and overall crime rates. So why do we pay them so much? Many who are for defunding the police argue that police officers and the police departments are responsible for too many services. The U.S. has an over-reliance on law enforcement, which is expected to handle a wide variety of social issues, such as dealing with the unhoused, mental health, and substance abuse, which they receive little training for and seem to have very little empathy for as a whole. Activists are asking for an unbundling of these services. Instead of relying on law enforcement to handle situations that they aren't trained to take care of, there would be specialized response teams, such as social workers, emergency medical technicians, conflict resolution specialists, restorative justice teams, and other community-based professionals who could be there to help. According to a sociologist at Princeton, Patrick Sharkey, Evidence shows that there is a growing body that demonstrates how community organizations can play a more central role in reducing violence. In an interview with The Atlantic, Sharkey said, Police presence can reduce violence, but there are lots of other things that reduce violence too. Business improvement districts reduce violence. University security organizations reduce violence. It's possible that relying on police isn't as necessary as we once thought, and that we might even have safer communities without many of them. He said in another interview that aggressive policing and mass incarceration have had staggering costs, saying the next model should be one driven primarily by residents and local organizations as central actors. Police still certainly have a role to play, but responding to violent crime takes up only a tiny fraction of police officers' time. So the idea here is that we can rely on residents and local organizations to take over most of the duties that officers currently handle and make sure neighborhoods are safe. If you want to go even further than defunding the police and you're more into the police abolitionist movement, let's talk about that a little bit. Those who lean toward abolishing the police advocate replacing policing with other systems of public safety altogether. 
They believe that policing as a system is so inherently flawed that there is no way it can be fixed and reformed, but must be completely taken away and rebuilt by disbanding, disempowering, and disarming the police. I can get on board with all of that. Abolitionists speak out about the fact that the institution of law enforcement is deeply rooted in white supremacy and settler colonialism, which is inseparable from a pre-existing racial capitalist order. So reforming policing will thus always fail. As summarized by scholars of criminal justice, Mahesh Nala and Graham Newman, many policing problems plagued the new cities of America. They included controlling certain classes, including the enslaved and American Indians. There was such a thing as, quote-unquote, slave patrols during the early policing for the purpose of keeping the enslaved from rebelling or escaping. And this is what the modern police organization of the U.S. was developed out of. So policing, inherently racist. This would require communities to create new alternatives to policing, which is really daunting to a lot of people. We're so used to relying on the police, even though we know that they aren't always on our side, that the idea of trying something new and unknown seems really overwhelming. I think that if we all took the time and energy into integrating more and more community-based services while slowly weeding out the police force, we could make it happen. Kind of like when my doctor was weaning me off of Paxil to get me onto Lexapro. Academic Alex S. Vitali explains that police abolition would be a process rather than a big singular events. They say, Well, I'm certainly not talking about any kind of scenario where tomorrow someone just flips a switch and there are no police. What I'm talking about is a systematic questioning of the specific roles that police currently undertake and attempting to develop evidence-based alternatives so that we can dial back our reliance on them. And my feeling is that this encompasses actually the vast majority of what police do. We have better alternatives for them. Even if you take something like burglary, a huge amount of burglary activity is driven by drug use, and we need to completely rethink our approach to drugs so that property crime isn't the primary way that people access drugs. We don't have any part of this country that has high-quality medical drug treatment on demand, but we have policing on demand everywhere, and that's not working. Police and prison abolition is considered by abolitionists as not a definitive end because police and prisons lie at the heart of the capitalist state, which is always evolving, adapting, and reconstituting itself in response to resistance and insurgency. That was a quote from Luis Fernandez, a professor of criminology, who says that it's not asking what are the alternatives to policing, but what are the alternatives to capitalism? Fernandez characterizes the role of police being one that maintains the capitalistic social order so that those people who have power can do their business with the least amount of disruption possible. In order for our police and prison systems to be saved, we must look at the root of the problem, which is the undoing of the racist capitalist order. Joshua Brion from the Hampton Institute, a historically black research college, says, Black death is a necessity of racial capitalism and the institutions, such as policing and prisons, that exist to uphold it. The only realistic solution to a reality in which anti-black terror, violence, and death to inevitably function as a system is abolition. Of course, when Black Lives Matter became a thing, the white people had to try to get their piece of the pie too. 
and other little fringe groups like All Lives Matter, White Lives Matter, and Blue Lives Matter began popping up. Let's talk about these guys, shall we? All Lives Matter popped up as a response for Black Lives Matter shortly after the movement gained national attention. And if you want to feel really shitty, listen to this. According to a poll from 2015, 78% of American voters said the statement All Lives Matter was closest to their own personal views when compared to Black Lives Matter. What the fuck? 11% agreed with Black Lives Matter, and 9% voted that neither statement represented their personal point of view. Professor Charles Chip Linscott says that ALM promotes the erasure of structural and anti-Black racism and Black social death in the name of formal and ideological and post-racial colorblindness, meaning all lives matter could only exist in a post-racial society, which, sorry not sorry, we don't live in. The founders of BLM have echoed this by saying, Black Lives Matter doesn't mean your life isn't important. It means that black lives, which are seen without value within white supremacy, are important to your liberation. President Obama said, I think that the reason that the organizers used the phrase Black Lives Matter was not because they were suggesting that no one else's lives matter. Rather, what they were suggesting was there is a specific problem that is happening in the African-American community that's not happening in other communities. Blue Lives Matter was also a counter-movement to BLM, which advocates that those who were prosecuted and convicted of killing law enforcement officials should be sentenced under the same hate crime statutes. This was started after the homicides of NYPD officers in Brooklyn, New York in December of 2014. Since the growth of Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter has become a pro-police officer movement, criticized by the ACLU and others. White Lives Matter, you may also search in Google for Nationalist Front. In August 2016, the Southern Poverty Law Center added White Lives Matter to their list of hate groups. Let's talk about the reception of Black Lives Matter. Overall, the reception seems to depend on race. A poll in June 2016 found that 65% of Black American adults supported Black Lives Matter, and 40% of white Americans did as well. 95% of Black Americans believe that Black Lives Matter would be, quote, effective in the long run in helping the Black community achieve equality, and 34% of white Americans agreed. That's too much of a discrepancy. According to a U.S. crisis monitor, during most of 2020, U.S. law enforcement agencies have used tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets, and beatings at a much higher percentage at Black Lives Matter demonstrations than pro-Trump or other right-wing protests regardless if the protest was violent or peaceful. The movement saw a drastic increase of support in 2020. Remember 2020, when we spoke about how worried we were that that moment would stay just that? A moment? According to a researcher of attitudes among young adults, they believe that since 2020, the movement has evolved from black people versus the police to young people versus racism. An online survey of people aged 18 to 34 showed that there is a broad support of the Black Lives Matter movement from this age bracket, except for those who identified as pro-Trump Republicans. Ayo Tometi theorized that the increased support in 2020 was due to the result of economic anxiety and contempt for the American government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic on top of all the other brutality that we witnessed. Protests led by Black Lives Matter in 2020 developed into one of the largest movements in U.S. history. 
However, just as we feared, Pew Research shows that the movement's momentum and popularity has begun to decline since 2020. At first, support for Black Lives Matter fell 12%, then 55%, and eventually it returned to a net negative approval among white Americans. Support remains widespread among Black Americans, with it up by 1%. But let's go back to look at May 2020, when things really picked up for the Black Lives Matter movement and the violence by police and other law enforcement seemed to be rampant. Leading up to the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery was murdered by a group of three white men on February 23, 2020, who were stalking him while he was out for a run. Video that captured his murder ignited rage into the hearts of Americans and protests shot up and sayings like, I run with Ahmad" started popping up everywhere. On March 13, 2020, Breonna Taylor was shot and killed by police after a no-knock warrant was wrongfully carried out at her home. Though Brianna's cause of death was determined to be a homicide, we have yet to see any form of justice or accountability in her case. Brianna was killed right at the time that lockdowns began happening all over the country, leading to her story being buried for a period of time. After the murder of George Floyd, it was like all the anger and rage that was felt over the deaths of Ahmad, then Brianna, were amplified after witnessing a video where a man had his knee on George Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 29 seconds, killing him. There were a series of protests against police brutality and racism, which began in Minneapolis, where Floyd was murdered, and grew to be nationwide. And these protests began immediately, just hours after the death of George Floyd, as bystander video and word of mouth began to spread. Protests first popped up on the corner of 38th and Chicago Avenue, the intersection where Floyd died, and spread out to other parts of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Quickly, they spread nationwide to over 2,000 cities in the U.S. and over 60 countries in support of Black Lives Matter. Polls that summer showed that an estimate of between 15 and 26 million people had participated at some point in demonstrations in the U.S., making it the largest protest in U.S. history. While most of them were peaceful, the emotions ran so high that at times they led to looting and destroying of property. At least 200 cities across the country imposed curfews by early June 2020, and more than 30 states and Washington, D.C. activated over 96,000 National Guard, State Guard, 82nd Airborne, and 3rd Infantry Regiment services, which constituted the largest military operation other than war in U.S. history. Arson, vandalism, and looting that occurred between May 26th and June 8th caused approximately $1 to $2 billion in damages nationally, the highest recorded damage from civil disorder in U.S. history, surpassing the 1992 Rodney King uprising. By June 2020, more than 19 people had died in relation to the unrest. Protests continued throughout 2020 and into 2021, but most notably in Minneapolis at the intersection of where George Floyd died, which has been referred to as George Floyd Square. The occupation of George Floyd Square persisted into 2023. However, as of 2022, vehicular traffic was finally allowed to pass through it. The city of Minneapolis officially designated the streetway as George Perry Floyd Square in 2022. Long-term planning for an official permanent memorial to Floyd at the site is underway. The right has many criticisms of Black Lives Matter. 
Some have accused the movement of deriving from the Marxist movement based on comments that one of the co-founders made, saying they are trained Marxists. But records have shown that few people who identify with the morals of Black Lives Matter are actual Marxists. Critics accuse them of being anti-police and endorse violence against police. A police sergeant from Dallas filed an unsuccessful lawsuit against Black Lives Matter in 2016, accusing them of inciting a race war. In 2015, protests broke out at the Minnesota State Fair, my happy place, with protesters shouting things like, pigs in a blanket, fry him up like bacon. Law enforcement claimed this promoted death to police. The protest organizer fought back saying, what we are promoting is that if black people who kill police officers are going to fry, then we want police officers to face the same treatment that we face as civilians for killing officers. When I read the part where most Americans have become disillusioned with the Black Lives Matter movement, it brings up a lot of emotion in me. I don't know if you all remember the conversations that Keegan and I had from this time, but I was so hopeful that this movement would continue to carry on or make some huge changes so that the problems faced by the black community wouldn't be as big of a problem anymore. I wasn't naive thinking that racism itself would end or anything, but I hoped that new policies and laws would be put in place so that all of this would bring out some kind of change. Remember when everyone posted those little black squares to their Instagram? Remember when that's all you shared on your stories and got into arguments with loved ones over the murder of George Floyd? Was it really just a moment of opportunity because we were all already angry and locked up inside? Because we already felt so scared and unsure, and there was literally death and disease all around us? My hopefulness was always brought back down to reality from my black friends. They had seen this all before. They had seen people wholeheartedly get involved in the movement, then back out. I made a promise to myself that even if this trend died down, I would do my best to educate myself every day to become anti-racist to acknowledge my privilege and use my voice to empower minority communities and then let their voices shine. Doing Black History Month alone this year as a white woman was weird. I don't want to come off as preachy or entitled or diminish black voices because you're hearing from a white one, but I am all alone now and I think it would be more wrong of me to ignore this month. I still have a lot to learn, and I haven't been speaking on any sort of authority throughout this month, but I feel really passionately about the end of racism and about how we can reform or remove law enforcement in order to help protect lives at risk and about educating others like me on the issues that the black community faces and continue to face this very day. To me, Black Lives Matter will always be important and life-changing for me. And black lives still fucking matter. All right, well, heavy episode, but you know, I'm really glad that I took the extra week to really make this episode what it was. I feel like I got all of the information out that I wanted to, but if there's any other feelings or facts or anything that you wanted to add that you want me to share on the show, please reach out to me and let me know. DM me or email me. And I would love to hear your thoughts and feelings, especially looking back on the past three years since, you know, the biggest moments of unrest happened in, you know, U.S. history since a really long time. 
So thank you all for joining me on my first solo Black History Month. I really appreciate you joining me on this journey. And I want to give you all another reminder to check out the Angry Feminist Book Club on Patreon if you are thinking of joining. There will be a new episode up on Wednesday this week covering the text of Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston. It's going to be awesome. And if you want to prepare for Women's History Month's book, March's book, it will be Women Talking by Miriam Taves, which is also a movie that came out this year. So if you want to be part of the conversation, please go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist. Click on the link in the show notes or click on the link in the bio on the Instagram page to go directly to Patreon. You can join the $5 level to be part of the book club or join the $8 level to get ad free versions of these episodes on top of the book club shenanigans as well. I also really want to hear what you have to say about the book. So please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me at angry neighborhood feminist on Instagram. Also, one last reminder, if you haven't done so already, please go over to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star review plus a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show and then hop on over to Spotify and rate it over there. All right. I love you all so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. That is all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.